but guys, I know this is going to sound really weird, but this is actually an opportunity. You know, because everyone's thinking this is terrible. Of course it's terrible, but it's terrible for all our competitors too. So if you're smarter, quicker on your feet, more innovative, more creative, get stuff done quickly, when we come out of it, we'll be in better shape. There's always an opportunity, always an opportunity somewhere, whatever it is, so which might sound counterintuitive. Welcome back to Web Chat, a podcast from White and Black Limited. My name is Sam Ridgway. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. I hope you enjoyed our previous episode with James Wilkes from Grey Page. It was a really interesting deep dive into big tech and data and AI and where they fit into the intelligence industry and, and, and other industries more generally that are based on a tradecraft or have human interaction and relationship and experience at their heart and where those two things meet and intersect and how they fit together. So James and I unpacked that in the last episode. Do do go back and listen. Don't forget to rate the podcast if you enjoy it. Please give us five stars. It It helps us climb the rankings and distribute the podcast as far and wide as we can. So please do do that. But I've got another great guest for you today. They keep on coming. Peter Higgins has extensive experience in the clothing and fashion sector. Peter is co-founder and now NED of Charles Tirrett Shirts, which is a multi-channel clothing retailer and they specialise in smart and smart casual wear. He's a former director of luxury fashion retailer M. And Peter also spent four years serving as chairman at Kath Kitson and 10 years at clothing brand Joe Browns, as well as some time at LK Bennett. And on top of all that, Peter is also NED at the charity Mary's Meals. And Mary's Meals is a global charity that serves life-changing school meals to some of the world's poorest children. And their vision is that every child receives one daily meal in their place of education. And they're already reaching 2.4 million school children every day. Safe to say then that Peter has had a pretty comprehensive career thus far. But I asked Peter in this interview about how the global pandemic impacted a brand like Tirrett selling smart and smart casual clothing in the jaws of a pandemic when everyone was working at home. What did that mean for the business? And then we moved on to discuss the importance of of relationship and of customer service in both his uh, very B2C focused industry and ours here at White and Black B2B context just how important relationships and that customer-centric approach is. And he's a good man to talk to about that. Tira as a company uh, has won awards for its customer service, for its web chats, for its e-retail. But I started out by asking Peter how he kicked off his career and how he's come to where he is today. Um, So I managed to, uh, I struggled into Cambridge University to read classics. I spent most of my time actually playing rugby uh, back in those days and it wasn't terribly good classics but like all uh, classicists at the end when I came to think about a career I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do so I became a classics teacher for a couple of years and uh, I taught at Harrow School it was a lot of fun I was playing rugby at Wasps which was just down the road so it was was a good mix and then I realised much that I loved it I didn't want to do it for more than two years and I applied to Bain & Company a US uh, strategic management consultancy firm. And I somehow got a job there. I think I was the only art student in their intake of 48. And I didn't know how to turn the computer on, but everyone else did. (laughs) Um, 
But the one thing I was actually quite good at was making the presentations to the clients because I'd been a teacher. So I sort of developed my role as the guy who did the presentation, even though I didn't necessarily understand everything that I was presenting. Um, okay. And so I, ma- I managed to do pretty well there and, and got promoted. And, and I was just entering my third year. And this mate of mine, Nick, uh, uh, Nick Wheeler, we were having lunch one day and he'd had this idea for a shirt business, uh, doing it by mail order. And he said, I'm going to leave and, you know, set up the business full time. And I said, oh, OK, that's that's interesting. Um, shall I do it, too? And he said, yeah, why not? And I tell that story a lot because I would absolutely no intention of I was being paid a ridiculous sum of money to not be particularly good at my job. Um, but I just on the spur of the moment, it just seemed like a good idea. So I left. And, you know, that obviously completely changed the trajectory of my life. I'd have probably gone to business school and ended up, you know, in some sort of financial stroke consulting institution, I guess. You know, I, I don't really know. Uh, but I, I have no regrets about that. Unfortunately, I did get a rugby injury just afterwards and was off work for six months. Um, Bain paid me in full. So I felt I owed them six months. So I arrived in a year late at Charles Turret. And, um, you know, it was a roller coaster ride. Lots and lots of mistakes made, but we learned from them and we sort of got going. But after 15 years, I was pretty exhausted working, you know, really, really hard. When you've got a payroll bill to fill, you know, mm. pay every month, it's it, it's quite a lot of pressure. And um, so I managed to persuade Nick to buy some shares from me and I sort of semi-retired. So since 2005, the last 18 years, I, I've had a sort of um, peripatetic uh, career where I've been chairman of businesses. I'm still a non-exec at Charles Terry. I've still got shares in Charles Terry, but I decided that I didn't want to work full time and I wanted to take control of my life and do what I wanted to do, which might be watching the kids play sport, which they obviously hated, but uh, I quite enjoyed. And, um, and 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 that's really, yeah, how it all went. Um, and after I left, there was a slight change of direction at Charles Terry. It didn't sort of, I didn't agree. We were trying to be a sort of mini polar alpha M, which really did not work. And that, I suppose, brought home to me the importance of strategy. And one of the things I do with all the companies that I work with is, you know, really spend a lot of time. What is your strategy? Because founders, businessmen, business women, business people, they're always so busy doing the business mm. that they often don't actually ask questions. Well, hang on. Have we got the right strategy? Are we properly differentiated? What's our long term goal? All that sort of stuff. And I realized I'd sort of worked that out. And so I was able to you know, apply that to the other organizations that I then subsequently joined uh, from 2006 onwards. Which were in or, or are in the same very similar sector, you know, that fashion retail. Yeah. Is that, has that always been an interest or has that just come out of, of Tirrit? Uh, I, I suppose. I think that was, yeah, that was pretty much, you know, potluck, Nick had chosen shirts. So I knew something then about retail sector in, in uh, fashion or clothing, let's call it clothing. Uh, Charles Tirrit's maybe slightly fashionable, but certainly not fashion. Um, and... I think that's the thing you work out is that actually nobody wants you then to run an engineering company because you have no idea how an engineering company works. You know, sure. they, people want you to do the same as you've done before. And because you've made all the mistakes that people are about to make, it actually becomes quite easy in a way. Um, so I became chairman of Kath Kidston in 2006. 
when it was really very popular. Mm-hmm. It had made no money for 14 years uh, since its foundation, not long after us. And and I mean, they just made all the mistakes we had made and that we were going to make. And I just stopped them from making those mistakes. So we made money in year one. And three and a half years later, we sold it for 106 million. And, you know, set it up, put a team in place, realized that the team was probably going to be all changing. So I sort of jumped shit because I didn't I didn't feel it was right that I as chairman, having put the team in, should then be the one sacking them. So I sort of jumped ship first. They'd have probably fired me anyway. Uh, maybe <laughs> I'd have been fired first. But anyway, I managed to get out before I got fired. Uh, but but actually, we'd set up the business pretty well. And, and uh, I think a couple of years after leaving, it was sold again uh, for 250 million. But they'd had a huge change in strategy. I'll never forget, I left a sort of do's and don'ts for the new chairman saying, do this, don't do that. And he pretty much did it the other way around. And I think it went bust, <laughs> went bust about two years after leaving. Really? And, and that really interesting one about strategy, they got the strategy completely wrong. And they also, I think, slightly marginalised Kath herself, who was an incredibly talented designer. And if you move away the person who is part of your DNA. That's that's a bit of a tricky one. But anyway, look, it was successful and 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 that was great. Um, I also quite by chance started working for the charity Mary's Meals. You know, in 2006, I've, I've got a bit of money. I've paid my school fees. I've, I've paid the mortgage off. And but I was quite bored um, until the Kath Kissing thing came along. And one day. I think my wife suggested we go and buy some paintings and we went to Woodstock, went to an art gallery, found a couple of nice paintings. Now, I always haggle over the price of paintings. Got to haggle. My wife finds that so embarrassing. Absolutely. She left the bill. So I haggled <laughs> over the price, got my 20% discount, just walking out the door with my two paintings, very happy with life. And the lady said, um, of course, you know, half the profits go to charity. And I said, well, gosh, no, I didn't know that. So I felt slightly guilty, uh, went back in. And she told me all about Mary's Meals. And, and, and the main premise of Mary's Meals is that if a child comes to school in Africa or India or Haiti or some you know developing world country where there's a lot of poverty, we give them a meal. So child comes to school, they get a meal, and then they get an education. And education is the only way to solve poverty. It is the only way. And it just seemed like such a brilliant idea. I went outside, I told Harriet, we went home, and I wrote a check for the discount. And I sent it to this wonderful guy, the founder called Magnus. And about six months later, he rang me and said, you know, I think I need some help. Do you want to help? And I said, yeah, OK. And I think one of the things that, that was interesting um, was that actually, even though it's a charity, in fact, a lot of the principles of growing a business are, of course, the same as growing an organisation like a charity. So it was all about people. It was all about strategy. Have you got the right mission? And then making sure everyone focused on the mission, which is feeding kids. And I think they were feeding about 100,000 in 2006. And today we feed 2.6 million children every day. Wow, okay. So that's wow. really, you know, that's that's sort of making a difference. Mm. And, um, and and I give a lot of talks in schools now. Uh, it's a sort of, I write to headmaster, headmistress and say, look, I'll come in and talk about entrepreneurship. And you don't have to pay me for that. I'll come and do that. I'll pay all my own expenses. All I ask is you let me speak in chapel about this charity Mary's Meals. And then if they want to raise some money, that'd be great. And, and 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 that sort of tends to be what happens. But I sort of start off by saying, you know, I'm very lucky. We sell 20,000 shirts every day. And everyone mm-hmm. thinks, wow, 20,000 shirts every day, you know. But then I go on to say, but actually, that's nothing. I'm actually much more proud about this other thing that I do, which is working with Mary's Meals, all about education. 
And it actually really resonates with the students because mm. they completely get that for a trip to Costa Coffee to buy coffees with your mates and a sticky bun, that actually feeds a child for a year. So in Malawi, it costs about 12 quid to feed a child for a year. Our average throughout the world is about 20 pounds, but that's like nothing. And so I sort of end up by saying, so, okay, so 20,000 shirts every day. Yeah, great. But 2.6 million children are fed every day. So, I, so I, yeah, you know, so, so I guess, you know, that's probably the thing I enjoy the most. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's because I actually think it's probably doing some use, you know, selling you sure. another shirt sounds kind of, you, know, <laughs> you might want to buy one of our shirts, but, you know, it's not quite the same. It's not, it's not going to revolutionize <laughs> your life. Although, yeah. although your friends might think you're looking very smart, but you know, well, you yeah, I was going to wear my, uh, I was going to wear one this morning actually, but it wasn't iron, so I decided. So <laughs> oh, don't wear rocks. Iron one, get an iron one. You don't have to worry about it. Oh, of course, of course. You don't even have to worry. I have an iron mine. That's perfect. <laughs> Couldn't tell. Uh, um, maybe, maybe we can. Um, so this this point on strategies is something you mentioned in in yeah. both guises there, both business and and Mary's Mills, but. I was, I was going to ask you, because if we'd done this interview a couple of years ago, it would have sounded very, very different. And, yeah. you know, in terms of um, Charles Tirrett context and, and the other the other businesses you've, you've been involved with, it would have been all about COVID, all about the pandemic, yeah. the P word. Our relationships yeah. with the office have changed. People are obviously yeah. working from home. We all know that. Um, and even despite more and more offices calling workers back, um, it's it's not a short term trend anymore, is it? It's, it's, things have changed forever. So, in terms of strategy for for a company like Tirrett in the in the industry that you're in, what what's changed, be it good or bad, sort of post pandemic? I think we're through that initial shock phase, yeah. but yeah. but what's the lasting impact of the last few years? And and I suppose how has that shaped now? What yeah what you're doing and, and what that strategy looks like moving forward. The extraordinary thing about working from home is that Charles, we've sort of always done it. I mean, when I, when I was sort of joint chief exec with Nick, I was working four days in the office and one at home. You know, on a Friday, I, I used to work from home because I wanted time to think and so on. So we were already doing that. Now, when the pandemic hit, clearly for us, we're selling what you wear to work and no one's going to work. So that was an existential crisis. And I think our sales you know, dropped from above 200 to about 130 million, you know, so we, so we were pretty close to uh, to the edge. Um, and I, but I remember staying at an April board meeting. Um, guys, I know it's going to sound really weird, but this is actually an opportunity. You know, because everyone's thinking this is terrible. Of course it's terrible, but it's terrible for all our competitors too. So if you're smarter, quicker on your feet, more innovative, more creative, get stuff done quickly, when we come out of it, we'll be in better shape. Sure enough, you know, we were in better shape. Our closest competitor, TM Lewin, I think they went bust twice. Moss Bros, you know, had a had a restructuring. Brooks Brothers went bust again in America. You know, now we are reaping the benefits from that. So one thing, just, you know, whenever something bad happens, there's always an opportunity, always an opportunity somewhere, whatever it is, which might sound counterintuitive. But, you know, COVID actually turned out to be not a bad thing for us as a business. But obviously, we changed our strategy from, you know, I w- might have been wearing a white shirt with a tie, probably not a tie, but I'm now wearing a smart casual shirt button down. So we sell way more smart casual shirts than formal shirts. So all we did was just, you know, slightly change what we were selling. 
although we were still selling those things. So that's one thing that on, on, on the sort of COVID side was change of strategy, but not dramatic. Work from home, you've always done a forum one type work at Charles Tirrett, where you may you were may be able to work on a Friday at home because you had work to do that you need to think about or whatever it was. So we'd already done that sort of well ahead of the game. Um, I believe forum one is fine. And for some departments, three and two, but I don't believe in working for home for lots and lots of reasons, lots of very good reasons. And I think you only have to look at the productivity of the civil service, which has declined enormously since to realise that work from home does not work. But obviously getting a work-life balance is a good thing. The problem is that the balance has gone completely the wrong way. Now, you know, I work, I work in a, uh, you know, a fashion business. I used to work at another, I was chair of a company called Me and M, which was also very successful, which we managed to sell. You know, you can't run a fashion business without having people in the office because you need to know if the, what the product looks like. Does it match with the other products? You've got marketing teams. But there are so many reasons why I don't believe in work from home as a more at home than at work. Most of the best ideas come from communication, from meetings, from people being in meetings. Lots of them come from just chit chats around the office. That doesn't happen if you're working from home. People who start work as graduates or just coming in for the first time, most of their learnings come from their peers or from those who are senior to them. If they're working from home, then they learn nothing. And I just I just don't see, you know, I think we I think it's a ticking time bomb. I think if the graduates are coming in now are not going to learn from those around them, then in 10 to 15 years time, when they're the senior people, will they know enough for the business to be successful? I don't think I, I don't think they will. Now, people may think, oh, he, you know, he's a middle aged man. He's an old fart. He's in, you know, he's got no idea what he's talking about. But I, I see that now. Um, you know, my daughter works at a publishing company. Her two bosses are only in the office one day a week. So I completely agree in the principle um, of everyone in the office being able to work from home on a Friday. It saves them time. It saves them money. It saves the environment if they're driving. That's great because one day a week is easily doable. And equally, I don't mind if someone in IT or finance has a lot of work to do that is purely their own work that no one else impacts. And therefore, if they want a second day at home, that's fine too for all the other benefits that it brings. But if you have a company ethos where everyone can do that all the time, then I, th I think that's 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 you're going to fail. You're going to fail. And it's proven by the civil service drop in productivity. You know, you look at the, the fiasco of passports. Um, you had the head of the passport office working from home and we none of us could get our passports. Now, how is that possible? Did they not think during 18 months of COVID that when COVID ended, there might just be a bit of a rush for passports? I mean, it felt like there was no planning, no nothing. And, um, you know, I think, you know, with driving, getting driving, uh, you know, driving tests um, uh, booked in and things like that, it's just absolute chaos. So I, I don't agree with working from home as, a, as an overriding principle. And you look at all the banks now, they're forcing everyone to come back in. Facebook are getting people back in. But also, certainly for young people, I mean, when I started work, my social life, to a large extent, revolved around work. So what price your mental health if you're making no new friends, you're sitting at home. And again, for those of us in middle age who managed lucky enough to have a house, I've got a nice house to live in and work in. But if you're in a bedsit in East London, is that a nice place to work? I don't think so. 
So I, I think there's a real, a real problem which is being addressed because people realise it's not working in the way that you know people thought it might, and um, and so it's moving back. So, I, but again, it's always about balance. Mm. The principle is a great idea. Having a day at home once a week, brilliant. That's fine. But more than that, gets a bit tricky. Uh, so I'd say I'd say certainly for the younger people, mental health, having a place to socialise, to, to meet new people, but to learn. You learn from your peers and you learn from those who've done it all before. And if you're working from home, you don't get that. I also think the, I mean, the other thing as well about Teams and Zoom meetings and all that sort of stuff is when you're doing negotiations or having a, you know, difficult discussions, you're not able to pick up the physical ticks or nods or whatever that you can in a room. So it's sometimes quite hard to read a room and, and understand what's going on. So look, in principle, good idea, four and one, perfect, fine, three and two for certain departments. Yeah, I think that's fine. But I would say also during COVID, the people at Charles Stewart who are working on product and at M&M, they were in the office a lot. I mean, we faced an existential crisis mm-hmm. and, you know, we, we, did, we, we took everyone's temperature when they came in. They, we had free test kits. We put everyone two yards apart. And for the most part, everyone was pretty safe. You know, you look at our warehouse. If our warehouse closes, well, we go bust. We don't send anything out. We go bust. It's as simple as that. But what did we do? Well, we very quickly set up a system whereby you only move one way through the warehouse all day. There's a one-way traffic. Everyone's at least two yards apart. Again, taking people's temperatures, giving them test kits. You know, in business, in private enterprise, you do these things because you have to to survive. I think in the state sector. You know, that sort of innovation, that sort of creativity just doesn't happen. And if I'm sounding a bit anti-state sector, it's because I am slightly. Um, and, you know, I don't think, you know, the government's telling all the private businesses to get back to work, but it's done a lamentable job getting the civil servants to go back to work. So, um, you know, productivity has collapsed, not good for GDP. And, you know, and if people don't go into the office, particularly in the city of London, what happens to all the, you know, the pret a the sandwich bars, the, the pubs, the restaurants? They all get bust. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just got to get the balance right. And there's something there, isn't there? Because um, so that, that in terms of a business management point of view, that's your perspective. But what, in, what about the customer base? So you mentioned pret and sandwich bars and, and coffee there. But surely working from home, impacts impacts a company like Tirrit somewhat in terms of customer base. I mean people, yes, we're wearing shirts, but suits, ties. How's what have you noticed a change there? Because I oh, you know, that- yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I mean I mean it, it was fascinating. It was fascinating. So obviously we pivoted. So we always sold smart casual wear. We always yeah. sold polo shirts. We and you know and we sold a merino zip sweater. The merino zip sweater became the jacket. So if you were in a Zoom or Teams meeting and wanted to look smartish, mm-hmm. you'd have one of the shirts on, but then you'd have a zip net top. And, and and we sold tens of thousands. I mean, probably even more than that, hundreds of thousands. So we just changed the emphasis on our website of what we were selling. Now, of course, all the stores were closed. That, that was tricky. When the stores opened, bizarrely, the one thing that overperformed was suits. Was it really? Thinking, yeah, why are yeah, suits open? Well, suits are overperforming for, for I think for for two big reasons. One, lots of people had either put on weight or lost weight, depending on what they did during COVID. <laughs> and then and then another lot thought, well, actually, I'm not going to be wearing a suit often, 
But actually, if I'm going to, I want to look really smart. And it was actually the slightly more expensive suits that sold better than the enterprise suits. So some very strange things, you know, happened. That, that was only at the start. That, that that sort of obviously tailed off. But you know, so so now we sell. You know, most of our shirt sales are what you might call a smart casual shirt. So what I'm wearing now, which is a button down, but we still sell a lot of formal white shirts, blue shirts, and ties are. You know, they are definitely. Well, have been on a decline actually ever since Nick and I started at at, at, at Charles Stewart uh, together. But um, so the product line definitely changed. Uh, Me and M, which is a women's fashion brand, um, we were we were a lot a lot of what we did was well. In fact, when it happened in sort of March uh, 2020, we were just getting ready for Henley, Ascot, Cheltenham Gold Cup, Wimbledon. So we got all this sort of occasion wear, and there were no occasions. So what we did was literally put that into storage for the next year and just ordered more of our loungewear, our homeware and so on. So, you know, our sales dropped off a cliff and then suddenly they came flying back because we were selling what people wanted. You know, people did want tracky bottoms. Me and M sells are very, very smart tracky bottom. I mean, it's not cheap, but it's, you know, it's beautiful. And so, but that sold. So again, you know, in, in the private sector, if you've got a company with a great entrepreneurial culture where you can move quickly, yeah, then COVID's an opportunity. You just do things quicker, better, be more innovative, and uh, and both businesses came out, um, you know, in great shape. And we sold me and M last March. Uh, so again, it was four years from arriving as chair to selling the business with eighteen months of COVID, and we sold it for one hundred thirty-five million quid. I mean. And that's because there was a very talented team of people who during COVID worked their backsides off and uh, and they got rewarded for it. Um, and I sort of always feel, I think, I think it's just a shame in the state sector, we sort of slightly lost any creative entrepreneurial innovative flair and, and an ability to get things done. And if I can just move on to the sort of political side slightly, I think um, things just happen too slowly and people are just not used to getting things done. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to be a bit controversial. But, you know, if you talk about the benefits of Brexit, I mean, I'm just not seeing any benefits. Who's actually delivering the benefits? How is it actually happening? And uh, I think it's a shame there aren't more people from the private sector going into that public political sector. But then given what a shambles it is, why would you ever do it? I'd never do it, but I wish someone smart would. But there you go. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, that's, that's probably a, a different podcast discussion entirely. It is, it is. But, <laughs> it's um, an idea. No, 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 because it's interesting because actually it, it rings true with the success stories you, you've seen off the back of COVID and you've mentioned two there, but that agility seems so key. And, and you know, naively perhaps I, I was thinking before chatting to you that actually um, lockdown would be a bit of a disaster for, for a company like Tirrett selling what you sell. And yet because of that agility, it's just, it, it, the way you described it, there's quite a small pivot actually. And it was yeah. a, a change in website marketing and you, yeah. you move and that's fine. But like you say, it's, it's, it's having the team and having the agility to do that. And we look at looking a bit further ahead then, and I'm not asking you to sort of predict the future, but what would be your, your best guess as, as to what, the future looks like for for your industry for companies like um Tiret. um looking thinking particularly in terms of um, ai technology 
is it is it all in that is it encompassing esg and b corp those kind of circular models and sustainability is it a mix of all of that where where do we stand where where do we start? I mean, just on the ESG side, I mean, I mean, we have actually been. I think we've been at net zero for two or three years. We've been sort of pretty much ahead of the game on that, and we've been recycling shirts as well for a long time. You know, if you bring your old shirt in from any company, not ours, from any company, yeah. we'll give you a fiver for your old shirt. Uh, we'll give you yeah off your new shirt, and we will recycle what what you give us. So so in terms of that, yes, that's become incredibly important. And um, and again, we've we've probably been ahead of you know most people on it, but and, and we will continue to do that. Um, when it comes to AI and tech, I am utterly useless at tech. I mean, I am hopeless. So I am not the person to ask. I think that we will. Um, I, I know that we are now answering a large number of our customer service queries with our chatbot or equivalent of on you know on on the um, when, when when people are getting in touch. Um, and there's probably a bit more we can do there. Um, but I, yeah, I, you know, I am told that it, it's going to change things, you know, a lot more. I'm not, I'm not sure it changes yet our routes to market. I mean, I think, you know, retail, everyone's always saying the death of retail, but it is constantly evolving. And, um, you know, I think there needs to be more reasons to go into city centers, whether it's, bowling alleys, entertainments, big cinemas, whatever, I don't know. But so I think that will that um, that will continue. I, th- I think for Charles Tirrett, um, you know, we sell a product that is a worldwide product, certainly within in the developed world. Um, and so I think our thing is just to become more multinational. You know, we have a very, very good website that mm. is very easy to transfer to other countries. And so I think we will just become more multinational. Um, we will still have some retail. Um, and I am unfortunately not the right person to say how AI will affect us more than, than, than what we are doing at the moment. Well, well I suppose sure. nobody, nobody quite knows. That's the, that's the point, isn't it, no. as well? But I, I mean, you say Google, I think, launched a, um, a try-on app you know a, an online shopping feature a couple of weeks ago where you can we can try clothing on and that kind of thing but like you say i mean the website and, and as a as a customer as well the the direct email marketing and the personalization uh, that tier it bring is is excellent and you look at the stats on on personalization and the lever, leveraging that and, and direct marketing and Oh yeah, McKin- yeah, yeah. McKinsey, yeah. McKinsey looked at it and said, you know, forty percent um, yeah. increased revenues with for those who who utilise that compared to those who don't. So it's a no-brainer in that sense, isn't it? And it, I suppose, yeah, it's yeah. about use, using the tools. But there's a there's a, a sort of customer service element to me that runs through what Tirrit do, and I think there's there, there's a risk of losing that somehow. Um, when you when you begin to bring in too much of that tech based um, yeah. tech based yeah. customer service, I suppose. So so that's important, isn't it, for Terry to maintain yeah, and, that? Absolutely, and, and and that's why I'm I'm not sort of leaping on the air bandwagon. I mean, for, for us, and I think Nick has led this really well. You know, we've always bent over backwards to do the right thing for the customer. You know, if the customer gets a pair of trousers and there's a small hole in them, uh, we just say keep those. 
we'll send you a new we'll send you a new pair of trousers. And if you want to get them fixed and wear them, great. But we'll just send you a new pair. And you know, if anything goes wrong, we just always bend over backwards for the customer. Uh, we'll on the phone, you know, for people to speak to, and you can get through. It's not a BT, you know, Virgin Media where you never get to speak to anyone or or, or the tax office where it's almost impossible to speak to anyone ever. Um, so, yeah, the customer is still very much at the heart of it. And just to go back to what you're saying, that whole idea of, of personalised marketing, again, we've been doing it for a long time and that's probably given us some competitive advantage, but it is getting cleverer and cleverer. Uh, and again, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not brilliant on techniques on on the websites. But, you know, if someone goes into our website and then goes on another similar website, Charles Tillett will pop up. You know, so so all those things are being done. And uh, and, and I think that's 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 to our advantage. Um, so I think, you know, it's very hard to say the the biggest headwinds for us are probably macroeconomic. It's, it's probably, you know, how much disposable income do people have? You know, interest rates going to go up. I mean, we seem to be suffering the worst. And again, being a multinational business means we've spread our risk. And so, I suppose if if, if it goes sorry, if it goes badly wrong in the UK, then um, we'll just switch more marketing to America or, or more marketing to Germany or or whatever um, uh, instead. Hmm. Sure. The um, that that services point and and conscious of time, so coming towards the end, but. That customer service point that you mentioned, and that's that's going to be something you, you continue to do and keep keep very central to what you do. We're obviously in in fairly different sector in professional services, but I I personally am of the belief that B two B and B two C from from a from a marketing point of view, but from a client and customer service point of view, aren't actually that different. And I think there's a lot there's a lot to be learned from the way that companies like Tirrit interact in a B2C capacity and, and the way they manage customer service. Would you, could, could you see anything that is, that is transferable there from, from what you do at, at Tirrit in that B2C context that perhaps professional services in a B2B context could, could learn from, could pick up on, could do better? Um, I always think, I mean, I, uh, you know, when I choose a law firm, uh, to manage a transaction or to work with. I mean, it's all about relationships, actually. You know, mm-hmm. so, and I think it's the same in banking. Um, you know, I've, I've, for whatever reason, stayed at NatWest most of my life. And I've done that because I had this incredible service from my manager. Now, my last manager, I never, ever met him face-to-face, ever. But he was a great guy and he helped me and he sorted me out. It was all done on the phone or on Zoom or whatever. And and, and that was fantastic. And so when we went, we came to sell me and M uh, last year, we had three, you know, beautiful aid from three law firms and all very good law firms. But I just chose the guy as was a guy. It could have been a woman, but it was a guy. And I just thought he's a good guy. I'm going to get on with him. And I thought he'd be calm under pressure. And, and he was. And he was great. And so I I think uh, with with the legal profession, and with all service industries, it is all about that, uh, how you get on with people, relationships. Again, I think, and I think that if you, if all your your young graduates are all working from home, how are they learning that? How are they, how are they picking up those soft skills? Now, that's just me. That's just the way, I, yeah, that's how I make my decisions based on the people that I'm meeting. 
Because if you're seeing three blue chip legal firms, you know they can do a great job. The price is the price. You negotiate hard on that and everyone will pretty much come down to whatever the best price is going to be. So in the end, it's about the people. It's about rapport. Um, And so, you know, we try to, I mean, I, I say to all the companies that I work in, particularly the marketing team, you have got to think like a customer, not like a marketing team. You know, so marketing teams think that you can tell the customer something once and they'll remember it because you're living and breathing it all your life. And I say, no, no, you have to tell the customer at least 30 times what you want them to remember. You've got to think like a customer. Continue to bang away at that all the time because it is very, very important. And, and I think that, yes, you know, so my my main advice to any business that has customer interaction is that, you know, think like the customer all the time. What does the customer want? What do I need to say to get that rapport with the customer? What is it about Pete Higgins? What does he like? Oh, he likes cricket and rugby. I'll talk to him about cricket and rugby. It's not hard to work that out, you know. Uh, and so I, I would say it's about, yeah, it's about uh, yeah, creating rapport. And that's how you expand your business. And I would like to think, you know, the law firms we've worked with, when you have that celebration dinner afterwards, it's always actually been quite good fun because I've liked the person that that, that we've chosen to work with. Um, isn't to say lawyers can't be fun. I did actually marry a lawyer, so you know, <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to put anyone off. Um, and, and actually, and actually, I would say that she joined the law firm she joined because the principal, the senior partner, was a great guy. Yeah. Um, and she yeah, so, so, so there's a recruitment point there as well, isn't there? So yeah, you, absolutely. And that's the secondary benefit of having of, of, of having that so central is that it's going to be attractive yeah, right. to, to recruits yeah. as well. You know, because I always, again, when, when, I, when I give talks in schools about entrepreneurship and I, I open up questions at the end and actually probably have more time for questions than, than actually for the talk. And I, and I say, look, when you join a company, you know, you're all smart people. You'll probably get a few job offers, although obviously it is very tough at the moment. You need to walk around the office. And, what, and what's the culture like? What are the people like? The people that you meet, do you like those people? Because to enjoy work, you kind of have to in, like the people you're with. But if there's no one in the office, and if you're not going to be in the office much, how, how, do, you, how do you get that? I, 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 I think that's really tough. How do you make the right choice in the first place if no one's there? Um, and then obviously the, the, other, the other issues we've discussed. But uh, I think that that whole thing of getting on with people in, in all areas is, is possibly you know, undervalued but actually become ever more important now, post-COVID and, and things like that. Mm. Yeah. Great stuff, Peter. Um, thank you very, very much for your time. I know we had a few technical yeah, difficulties, so thank you for bearing with us. Yeah, not at all. And it was great fun. I enjoyed it. I mean, I hope it was of some use, but, you know, you, you're a very good interviewer and uh, you had rapport. You know, it was good. We started off talking about cricket. Yeah, there you go. There how we go. You, how can you...